rise and fall has long haunted the Western mind and will probably continue to do so. For the 1,500 years after the, the fall of Rome, the causes of its collapse were examined in almost every era. Uh, and the most common lesson uh, was that uh, the, decline, the decline was integral to the system, uh, just as death is integral to life. And the responsibilities of a great power ultimately generate its own collapse. And the, the greatest of all historians, Edward Gibbon, wrote, and I'll quote him, the decline of Rome was the natural and inevitable effect of immoderate greatness. Prosperity ripened the principle of decay, the causes of destruction multiplied with the extent of conquest, and as soon as time or accident had removed the artificial supports, the stupendous fabric yielded to the pressure of its own weight, unquote. Not only the greatest uh, historian, but one of the greatest prose writers too. I mean, what a beautiful passage. Um, now, in, in the brief uh, lifetimes of um, most of the people in this room, with a few exceptions, but most of us, um, we've actually witnessed um, a, a, a surfeit of declines and falls. And uh, let me just remind you of what they are. The empires of the British, the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese and the Soviets have all fallen in, in this little span of life of ours. Uh, in the li if you add the lives of our parents, then you can put in the, the uh, decline and fall of the Habsburg and on Ottoman empires uh, and, the, and the last emperor of the ancient Chinese dynasties also fell. And this is an astonishing procession of historical drama in such a short time. <clears throat> so it's not surprising there's a predilection uh, in the West to, to believe that the pr this parade of ruin is likely to continue and that the, the turn of the United States may well be next. Uh, in fact, there were predictions of this kind, as Roger reminded us, there have been predictions of this kind for, throughout the 20th century, but the, the issue became, um, was taken very seriously, certainly in academic and strategic circles, in the 1980s when the Yale historian Paul Kennedy's best-selling book, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, argued that American military spending and consequent increase in federal debt uh, would, unless curtailed, bankrupt the country. And in an argument similar to Edward Gibbon and Immanuel Kant, who agreed with, the, with Gibbon, um, Kennedy named the phenomenon imperial overstretch. Th throughout history, Kennedy wrote, the rise and fall of great powers was dependent on the growth of their industrial bases and the costs of their imperial commitments relative to their gross domestic products. And um, Kennedy, um, Kennedy was a you know, leftist historian, um, he omitted to, omitted to apply his analysis to the USSR and so missed a great opportunity to get that collapse right. Um, he, he did observe that, uh, nonetheless, that Soviet, Soviet military expenditure at, the, at that time, twice the share of GDP uh, as the US, uh, was worrying. Uh, but he also observed, uh, I mean, he wasn't, didn't get everything wrong, uh, he also observed that China under Deng Xiaoping was reducing military expenditure in favour of agriculture and, and industry, and uh, Kennedy therefore predicted that China would grow stronger relative to the other powers. And uh, so anyway, as far as the empires of communism are concerned, Kennedy was um, pretty much on the ball. However, when the United States in 1989 suddenly found itself the world's only superpower... The shine immediately went off Kennedy's reputation because everyone, the, the, his audience was really focused on not what's happening to anyone else but what's happening to the United States. Um, the shine went off his thesis uh, and, his, and his reputation. And in the immediate cold, 
in the immediate post-Cold War world, Kennedy's prediction about the decline of the US seemed no more than wishful thinking, perhaps by a left-leaning British professor with an anti-American pedigree. In any case, uh, in the 1990s, it had no influence whatsoever, uh, as US presidents from both the Republican and Democratic parties launched fresh military adventures against rogue states in Iraq and Serbia. However, 9-11 dramatically changed the course of this discussion. After George W. Bush responded to the terrorist attacks by invading Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003, which were actions that sent most academic commentators into a fury, there nonetheless emerged a number of observers from both sides of the conventional political divide who argued that rather than eschewing an imperial role, the United States should recognise that it itself had become an empire and should accordingly act like one. And let me remind you of some of the, um, the con contributors to this debate. From the, the, the left came um, Peter Beinart, uh, editor, then editor of the New Republic, and Michael Ignatieff in the New York Times. Um, and, and it ranged to conservatives such as Max Boot in uh, the Wall Street Journal, to uh, John O'Sullivan in National Review, and to Paul Johnson in the always reliable New Criterion. Uh, Ignatiev asked, and I'll quote him, what word but empire describes the awesome thing that America is becoming? It is an empire without consciousness of itself as such, constantly shocked that its good intentions arouse resentment abroad but that does not make it any less of an empire. And Peter Beinart said the world was not suffering from too much US imperialism, but too little. <coughs> this is the new editor of the New Republic, uh, especially in Africa. He, he wanted George Bush to intervene in Liberia to uh, overthrow the, the Charles Taylor regime. Charles Taylor, if you remember, was famous for um, giving uh, red diamonds to um, Paris models and, and eating his enemies. Um, uh, so Beinart, with his true to liberal principles, said, let's get rid of this guy. Um, uh, and also he wanted um, Bush to intervene in the Congo as well. Uh, now, since much of sub-Saharan sub Africa is plagued by pretty much the same problems as those two countries, civil war, uh, endemic corruption and economic collapse, the logic of the, uh, the, the call for Bush to, to intervene on moral grounds into Africa meant that um, it would have been the, the beginning of an American empire that stretched from, like as Britain's former domain, that stretched from the Cape to Cairo. Uh, but Bush did not go any further than he did. <clears throat> um, uh, Beinart was contemptuous of what he called the cold and narrow realism of those conservatives who deemed intervention in, Amer in Africa as foreign, foreign policy as a social work. However, not long after he wrote this in 2003, the neoconservatives Lawrence Kaplan and William Crystal produced a book <coughs> on the war called The War Over Iraq, uh, adopting the same enthusiasm for using American military power to remake the world. The American occupation of Iraq, they wrote, was likely to take many years and would not be complete until the whole Middle East was liberated from tyranny. America, they argued, was the great democratic hope for mankind. And I'll quote them. Not only is the United States a beacon of liberal democracy, Every one of this country's leaders has recognised the special role that America's principles play in its conduct abroad, unquote. Now, although there were some conservatives, such as uh, Owen Harris, the, the uh, former editor of uh, National Interest, even though he argued that the idea of crying, trying to create democracies 
uh, throughout the world on the back of uh, US military intervention smacked of Wilsonian idealism, the, the Wilsonian idealism that, um, that you saw after the World War I uh, and was bound to fail. But uh, Paul Kennedy's notion that this was the route to decline and fall never became an issue in this debate in, uh, uh, that sprung up after the Iraq War. The concept of imperial overstretch never was raised. And the same was true of the two next books on the subject, both published in 2004. One was by Neil Ferguson called Colossus, The uh, Price of America's Empire, and the other book was uh, Deepak Lal's, the e economic historian's book, In Praise of Empire, which, In Praise of Empires, which shared a similar th theme. What the world needs today, Ferguson argued, is not just any kind of empire. What is required is a liberal empire, his emphasis. And by liberal, he did not mean the American version um, that calls authors like Peter Beinart and Michael Ignatieff liberals. He meant the classic, classical liberals, uh, uh, liberalism of free trade and rule of law that uh, could provide much of the world with peace and order, ethical administration, stable fiscal and monetary policies. <clears throat> Uh, it would also, Ferguson hoped, underwrite the free international exchange of commodities, labour and capital. And Ferguson made a direct analogy uh, to show that this, this um, project was feasible, was not um, Wilsonian dreaming. Uh, if you did it right, um, you, you can see that it would work because the British Empire did precisely the same thing um, in, in the 19th and, uh, and up to the early 20th century. Um, uh, so... Um, that was, that was the, the stage of debate uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of the Iraq invasion. Now, it's a truism that writers are creatures of their times, but that does not licence the dramatic turnaround um, that um, the uh, Professor Ferguson, who I might remind you, is a professor at, at Harvard University and a number of other um, the world's great e academic institutions. Um, he, he underwent a dramatic turnaround um, when the global financial crisis hit the world in 2008, and he quietly dropped any talk of a liberal empire. Instead, he began to promote the notion of America's imperial decline. And this coincided, happily for him, with his new book entitled Civilization the West and the Rest, uh, plus a complimentary television series with um, an even uh, more marketable subtitle. The series was called Civilization is the West History. And Ferguson promoted both these, these um, books, both his book and television series in a series of newspaper, newspaper opinion pieces, journal articles, etc., as Roger reminded us. Um, he, he gave a series of lectures and wrote a series, number of articles entitled Empires on the Edge of Chaos. And uh, I don't know if, if people here, here saw them, I'm not sure what the American, um, but part of the lecture circuit was in Sydney, uh, which I attended, and there were a 1,000 people who paid $600 a plate to hear um, Neil Ferguson perform. And so he's, he, he is quite... He's, he's a, a power of force in the land and, and, a, and a big celebrity. We had ministers of the government and... And, um, and ministers of the opposition all attending. Um, now, but what, what um, Ferguson does in this recent work is actually revive the, by now, f um, forgotten arguments of Paul Kennedy. And Ferguson endorses the theory of imperial overstretch. Uh, he's, he's also, I might add, supported some pretty dodgy theories by um, the science and anthropology populariser Gerard, Di Gerard Diamond, 
who's written about, you know, as if the fall of the Maya people of Mexico is somehow an analogy of what's going to happen to the United States, which, you know, is drawing the longest possible um, bow, intellectual bow possible. But um, uh, Ferguson did seek to put some distance between himself and Paul Kennedy, who he quoted, and, and Jared Diamond. Um, but it was not about the process of decline or the inevitability of decline. It was only about its timing. And, and, and Ferguson made a point, um, and if you've seen him, he really hypes this up, a very dramatic speaker. Uh, rather than give their citizens plenty of warning, uh, he says, um, uh, the fall of great powers and empires usually happens very quickly. They do not roll gently down a slope, but they fall over a cliff. And uh, the example he gives is the fall of Rome, despite its 1,000 years history as a, as a a republic and an, and an empire, Rome fell to the Goths in a mere five decades. And in that short time, the city lost three-quarters of its, of its population, which was around about a, mi a million in the capital Rome. Uh, the particular causes that bring down an empire, Ferguson argued, are not exactly the same each time. Um, he acknowledges this, but in the, the case of the United States, the most likely tipping point that his, he predicted would come the moment the costs of servicing government debt exceeded the defence budget. And um, he's got graphs that puts up on a PowerPoint presentation to show that this is going to happen within the next five years. And that was speaking last year, so I guess it's now the next four years. Um, this is difficult to believe. In the fiscal year 2010, US government interest payments on debt amounted to only 35% of defence expenditure. So it's got a lot of rising to go in the next four or five years if it's going to exceed it. Um, and while, while the figures are, are, have been trending up, it's certainly quite open to government to reverse them um, without, effect, without affecting um, defence expenditure at all because the greatest US government outlay, outlays today are for welfare. If you put American budget outlays on pensions, health, public sector pensions healthcare and direct welfare payments, they amount to three times the, the total for defence expenditure. Uh, under the Obama administration, welfare is the fastest growing sector of government expenditure. Now, not all of this derives from um, Obama's commitment to leftist politics and Keynesian economics. Um, and the demographics of an ageing population um, build in um, an expansion of the pensions budget, no matter who is in office, unless they Seek, do the unthinkable and break their contracts with former government servants, government servants who, in, who have entitlements, uh, contractual entitlements to get the money. Um, that's built into the system, but there's still plenty of fat left in the system um, that could be cut before defence. And, and obviously cutting back welfare entitlements poses problems. There's been a lot of reporting. Uh, in fact, reading The Economist coming over on the plane, it was, it was talking about um, the governor of Wisconsin last year who... Um, who in, embarked on a program to make public sector workers contribute to their own pensions, funds, or their superannuation, and their own health insurance. And um, uh, there was <clears throat> not quite blood in the streets, but um, it, it caused a lot of, um, a lot of dissension. Um, and it just struck me, like, th this is, this is not, not really a, a, a big deal issue. Um, lots of countries in the world, the UK, Australia, require public sector employees to do this. And... Uh, to, to sort of predict that the expenditure on that is somehow going to be an in inevitable expansion that, that brings down the United States of America to the state of Rome under the Goths is kind of silly <laughs> because um, um, the, these 
uh, problems of this kind are manageable and um, uh, in, in, any de- in any democratic uh, country. And if you look back at um, the regime of, of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, um, she instituted a program reform, of reform that was much more formidable than the governor of Wisconsin or any, any other state government, governors are faced with to cut, bring down public expenditure in, in the US. So the idea, and even Greece, the idea of a few public servants riding in the streets because the government wants to increase their retirement age from 50 to 55, um, these are not empire-destroying um, issues. They are perfectly manageable, and if you prick public opinion, you'll find that um, the people are most in favour of retiring at 50 are the beneficiaries, and the rest, the 95% of the rest of the population think it is outrageous that they get away with it. Um, so it's likely to be a popular issue rather than um, one that has, generates blood in the, in, in the streets. And, and moreover, as I'm sure everyone with, with shares in, on the stock market realises in the last few days, we've now entered a, a new climate in economic policy. The massive Keynesian spending in the wake of the 2008-2009 global financial crisis is now widely recognised as a problem rather than a solution. Uh, and it left most Western governments with serious debt problems and, and chronically high unemployment. And uh, indeed, the, the, the proper description that we, we are, uh, of the world we are entering now is a global debt crisis. We had a GFC, we've now got a GDC, uh, where most responsible governments acknowledge that Keynesian solutions cannot work and that their budget policy should aim for surpluses, either now or in the near future. So the apparently inexorable acceleration of state expenditure on which Ferguson relies for his tipping point is not only not guaranteed, but it's becoming less likely every day. Uh, In terms of the imperial overstretch debate, the only really open question is where the required US government cuts will be made, from welfare or defence, and that's a matter for political debate and political choice rather than some immutable historical destiny. In other words, Ferguson's assertion that we have come to the end of 500 years of Western dominance is hard to take seriously. And it seems more a marketing ploy and an attention gatherer for his new book and television series than a credible historical proposition. In in fact, I I personally find it disappointing that uh, Ferguson has descended to this kind of thing since his earlier books... um, have mostly been of good value, and I reviewed a couple of them a few years ago for New Criterion, um, where I sang his praises and promoted promoted his his career. Um, But but this, the sort of um, range of predictions that he's gone into now puts him in the same category of of reliability as Al Gore on global warming. Uh, moreover, um, his latest analysis in this book, Civilization, I haven't read the book, but the articles and lead up to it uh, make a pretty clear, to, clear indication of what his case is. Um, his, his thesis is that the West rose to dominance over the past 500 years thanks to the development of what he calls six killer apps or social phenomena that were largely absent from the rest of humanity, but which did the trick to um, boost the West. And and he names them as uh, competition, science, democracy, medicine, consumerism and the work ethic. Not the Protestant work ethic, but the work ethic in general in the West. Um, And in terms of explaining the the kickstart required for modern development to take off, these causes are are certainly plausible as far as they go, 
but there's an underlying uh, phenomenon of the whole process or, or, or its necessary cause that uh, needs to be put in place first. And given his engagement in the debate over imperialism and great powers over the past decade, it's surprising that Ferguson doesn't emphasise it more, especially since it was out outlined very clearly in 2004 by a book that I think is by far and away the best one to have emerged from this whole little debate that I've been talking about over the past 25 years. And this is the final work I want to discuss this morning. Uh, it's a book called In Praise of Empires by the uh, economic historian Deepak Lal. Now, Lal's argument is that empires provide the peace and stability in which empires can most readily flourish, and that for global prosperity, the world needs free trade and a global imperial power to keep the peace. Uh, in fact, I find Lau's book performs uh, the impressive feat of actually creating a new paradigm for understanding modern history. Uh, rather than the modern history that my generation was taught, and I suspect most people in the room are in a similar position, are stories of uh, revolutionaries overthrowing ancien regimes and romantic heroes building nations out of ethnic and racial communities from the ruins of the old aristocratic dynasties. Um, instead of that, Lau sees the British Empire as the main driver of modernity. In the 19th century, he, he puts, points out, it was a global empire of free trade, enforced by the Royal Navy, by Royal, Na Royal Navy presence in all oceans and in both hemispheres. Britain provided direct rule in its formal empire and indirect rule in much of the rest of the world, such as the countries of Argentina, Chile, etc., um, through gunboat diplomacy to guarantee free trade. And Lau calls both the political structure of the era um, and both, the both the, this political structure and the era itself uh, Pax Britannia, or meaning the British peace. And he also calls it the first liberal international economic order, L, uh, his acronym LIEO, Liberal International Economic Order, which is... Uh, from 1815 to 1914, it, uh, the LIEO gave Britain a century of peace at home and provided the rest of the world with far more order and stability than it would otherwise have had. It was an empire not of plunder but of civil order that kept the ch channels of commerce free of pirates and predators. Britain did not do this because it wanted to conquer or even to civilise the world. Uh, it pursued its own interest to trade with the world and to provide its financial services. The Industrial Revolution produced a surplus of low-cost factory-manufactured goods for which, British, for which Britain saw, sought global markets, and the City of London set out to become the financier of the world, providing short-term credit for trade and long-term credit for investment. And, and despite the cant of nationalist and Marxist historians and theorists that um, infects in most works of history on this topic today. The first liberal international economic order was hugely beneficial to all the countries it touched. Uh, British investment provided the infrastructure of, of steam trains, ports and coaling stations through which local entrepreneurs could exploit their comparative advantage. Imperialism encouraged investors to put their money in developing economies, places that would otherwise have been sites of great risk. The extension of empire into the less developed world had the effect of reducing this risk by imposing directly or indirectly some form of British rule. Hence, when the British Empire was at its peak, uh, it was a much greater positive force for international investment in poor countries than any of today's um, 
multinational, transnational institutions. For instance, in 1913, 63% of foreign direct investment went to developing countries, whereas in 1996, it was only 28%. In 1913, when the British Empire was still alive, 25% of the world's stock of capital was invested in poor countries, but by 1997, it had fallen to 5%. After 1918, with Britain crushed by the weight of its war debts and uh, ab abroad and by class warfare at home, Pax Britannia's days were numbered. And the United States emerged from the war as the world's most economically and militarily powerful country and Britain's natural successor. Had it recognised its own global interests better, Lal says, the United States would have taken Britain's place and produced a Pax Americana then, in the 1920s. Instead, it embraced the Wilsonian idealism of collective security through transnational associations, such as the League of Nations, which very quickly failed and saw the United States retreat into isolationism and protectionism. And arguably, Lal writes, I'm not sure if I agree with him here, but um, I think this is perhaps drawing a long bow, but let, let me tell you what he says. He says, the United States' failure to assume the imperial role after the First World War contributed to many of the disasters of the last century. Two world wars, the Great Depression and the rise and fall of the illiberal creeds of fascism and communism. However, after the Second World War, uh, chastened by the experience of international disorder that American isolationism had produced in the interwar years, uh, America, the American political elite recognised that their national interests would be, would be so their national interest required a strong maritime power to uphold the balance of power in Europe and to maintain an international economic and political order in the rest of the world. They largely surreptitiously took up the task of building a US imperium to maintain the Pax, which the British were now both unwilling and unable to do. However, Lal laments that America never, never accepted the correct economic principle that it was in each country's interest to adopt, to unilaterally adopt free trade. Uh, instead, they adopted fair trade, um, which demanded reciprocal trading concessions from each of their trading partners. And if you do a free trade agreement with America, you only, it, it's only um, uh, with, with um, one country. It's not a general open um, invitation to free trade, which I note that China has recently um, undertaken. Um, Nonetheless, the United States did construct a new liberal international economic order after the Second World War, um, using transnational institutions to open world markets to trade in goods and for the free flow of capital. Initially, a number of third world countries under the thrall of the Soviet Union either stood outside or only half-heartedly joined this new liberal international economic order, but after the debt crisis of the 1980s and the collapse of European communism in 1989, there was a rush to join. And the most notable converts were India and China. And the Pax Americana that has still prevailed brought unimagined prosperity to most of the third world, especially its poorest. The only countries now excluded from this economic progress are those of Africa and the Middle East, which failed to join the newest phase of globalisation. Now, I'm, I'm very well aware that Pax Americana will no doubt seem to many in this room and certainly many in the wider public to be alien to American political traditions. 
In the midst of the controversy over, the, over his invasion of Iraq, George Bush told a gathering of military vet veterans at the White House that America had no territorial ambitions. We do not seek an empire, he said. Our nation is committed to freedom for ourselves and for others. Now, Lowell um, argues against, what, uh, against George Bush on what is in American interests. And, and, he, and he, he distinguishes between two kinds of empires. Um, and, he, and, and there's political theory which distinguishes between two kinds of states on the same basis. Um, those that seek to advance certain objects or enterprises, such as taking plunder or uh, imposing an ideology, on the one hand, there are empires that do that, and there are other empires that have not sought to impose any preferred pattern of ends, but rather <clears throat> saw themselves as custodian of laws and sought to maintain civil order. And the British Empire was the latter kind, uh, and Lowell argues, and I won't go into the detail of his argument, but I find it um, quite plausible, if not totally convincing, um, that that model is not inconsistent with, Amer <coughs> with American traditions, or at least with American classically liberal traditions, that doing it does not require a rethink or reconceptualization of uh, traditional American values. So the, um, to answer the issue in the subtitle of, of my paper, um, um, the, the question it raises is, would... Um, um, sorry, the question is, what, what would the world lose from the decline and fall of the USA? Um, I think it is, it, the answer is, it would lose the liberal international economic order. That is the principal thing it would lose. Uh, Lowell uh, argues that this outcome does not need the USA to go over a cliff. It does not need to, to emulate the fall of Rome. Um, <clears throat> it could uh, simply arise within the, frame, within the current framework of democratic politics simply from an American reluctance to fulfil the role and a preference to withdraw into itself, as it did in the interwar period. And if this happens, others may well fill its place. And, uh, and Lowell, I'll, I'll finish with, with Lowell's, uh, Lowell's quotation. Uh, he says... If the US public does not recognise the imperial burden that history has thrust upon it or is unwilling to bear it, the world will continue to muddle along as it has for the past century, with hesitant advances punctuated by various alarms and by periods of backsliding in the wholly beneficial process of globalisation. Perhaps if the United States is unwilling to shoulder the imperial burden of maintaining the global pacts, we, we'll, we will have to wait for one of the other emerging imperial states China or India to do so in the future, unquote. Now, my problem with this scenario is that neither China nor India have the political traditions or the culture required for the task. If either became the world imperium, we might still have an international economic order, but it would not be liberal, which means it would lose the one thing that made it work in the first place, and the one thing that made it a force for good in the world. Thank you. Thank you.